Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of a class from our 2022 Elul Learning Series. Hello everyone, Erev Tov. Hello to those who are joining on Zoom, to those who soon will be here in person, and hello to anyone who might be listening to this at another time on the Temple Beth Am podcast. This is the next installment of our Elul Learning theme this year, which we're calling Back to the Basics, which is our way of saying that even though we are in a community that does high-level study going deep into uh, texts and ideas, which is a good thing, sometimes it's interesting and worthy to pull back and say, what what do we really know about things that are central in our Jewish lives, right? Um, and sometimes there's not really a gap between what, what we know and what, what is real, and sometimes there is. So, for instance, when you ask someone essentially what Pesach is about, right, um, their answer is going to be pretty accurate. They may not know the details about how the Korban Pesach, the sacrificial offering, was done in Temple times, but their understanding of what the holiday is about, why we do it, and they, they might speak a little bit about the overlap between Chag Haviv, the holiday of springtime, versus the holiday of, of Exodus, um, but they're going to be able to speak pretty accurately as to what the original intentions of the Torah was. Um, believe it or not, the holidays that we spend the most amount of time planning in a synagogue, thinking about perhaps as Jews, um, maybe the holidays that we know the least about or that we are least aware of what the original intent of the holidays were. Rosh Hashanah, Modern Yom Kippur. The legacy of Yom Kippur, which we're going to spend less time on today, is pretty consistent. Right? Yom Kippur was always on the 10th day of Tishrei. And the Torah says, you're supposed to afflict yourselves. Uh, the Torah does not know the word teshuva, repentance, but the Torah knows that there's something uh, important that you have to do to your body to go through a process to do some kind of a cleansing, because kippur means to wipe away, right? to wipe away a sin. Kapara is offering forgiveness, but um, it really means wiping the slate clean. Rosh Hashanah is more murky. It's the uh, it's it's a, a two day holiday even in the Torah. It's the only one of the yuntifs that even in the Torah um, and when it comes to um, what happens today in the land of Israel is a two day holiday. And what we would think Rosh Hashanah is about, right? If I were to ask you, maybe I will ask you, if you had to give a sentence to someone as to what the holiday Rosh Hashanah is about, what might you say? I'm actually asking this time. What would you say is, is that Rosh Hashanah is about what? Or what do you think Rosh Hashanah was, was, was put onto the calendar for what reason? I can't hear you, Larry, if you're speaking. I couldn't tell if you were speaking or mad. Anyone? Don't be shy. You all have an answer. What is Rosh, what is Rosh Hashanah about as a holiday? Is it they can't unmute? I can't tell. So maybe you're just not answering. So I'll answer, right? Most people would say that Rosh Hashanah is about taking stock of your year. It's about doing repentance for the year to come. It's about Judgment Day, Kavakarat, Roa Edro, as we read in Nunatana Tokev, it's the day that we all pass as sheep underneath the staff of God, and our list of sins and our list of mitzvot are compared with each other. It's the day that we're written in the uh, Book of Life, we hope, right? We all have some pretty good answers to that, having paid attention to the liturgy, remembering that the liturgy is rabbinic or later, Right? The Judaism that we follow is rabbinic or later, inspired, moved by the Torah, but we don't follow Torah law when it comes to um, 
when it comes to Jewish practice. To quote one of my teachers, Rabbi Joel Roth, and I've said this before in different settings, he's one of the, the great halachic masters of the conservative movement of the last 50 years, and he once said uh, in an interesting context, when it comes to determining what Jewish law is, I don't give a damn what the Torah says. What he meant is not that he doesn't revere the Torah, but we don't paskin, we don't determine Jewish law, hi Barbara, by the Torah's words, right? We paskin Jewish law based on what the rabbis dealt with it. And so when we are thinking about the liturgy that we know well, the Alchites and Avinu Malkeinu and the Unatana Tokef and right? Moses never heard of that, any of it. We That starts with the era of the Mishnah and beyond. But even if we go back to the Mishnah and to the earlier verses in the Torah, we might uncover an understanding of what Rosh Hashanah was about, which is very different than what we think it's about. So what we're going to do in this class, um, Barbara, I'm going to, if you'd like, in case you didn't download it before, I'm going to, I just put into the chat again the uh, sheet. Uh, I suppose, is it, is, it, is it more helpful for me to share my screen with the sheet or for you all to pull it up on a different screen on your computer? Not that I'm going to get consensus to that. Um, put it up on your, from your computer because if I look at that, then I'm not looking at you. Okay. And I'm sure others are the same. All right. So let me, I'll share a screen so people can choose what they want to do. Okay. So the Torah has very few words about the holiday that we know of as Rosh Hashanah. There are basically three places it's mentioned. In the book of Vayikra, in Parshat Amor, in the book of Bamidbar, and then again in the book of Dvarim in Parshat um, Re'eh. Okay? And those, it's not a surprise then that those are the places from which we get. Also, it's also mentioned in Parshat Pinchas, sorry, Parshat Pinchas in Bamidbar, and then Parshat Re'eh in Book of Dvarim. Um, which is why the Torah readings that we read during the high holidays and during the holidays come from those parashot. Okay. Let's go back in time to the first chronological place that the Torah mentions the holiday that became Rosh Hashanah. We're, we're looking at the um, not even the infant stage. We're looking at the the in the in, in utero stage of this holiday. And let's pretend we know nothing else about this holiday, and our only information about it is what the Torah is telling us, right? For the moment, we are Torah scholars, not people who have lived through 30, 40, 50, 60, or 70, or 80 Rosh Hashanahs in our lives. Daber el b'nei Yisrael lemor. In a extended section where God is telling Moses about the holidays, God says, Daber, speak to the children of Israel, saying, Bachodesh hashvi'i, all of a sudden we have something interesting. Some people already have known about this. In the seventh month, it's interesting, of course, because where um, it's weird that what a holiday that is not known by the Torah, but which we know of as Rosh Hashanah, head of the year, is taking place in the seventh month, right? There's an answer to that, that there are two different ways in which the Jewish year, the months of the Jewish year are understood to have beginnings. And uh, when it comes to um, the birth of the world, right? We associate it with Rosh Hashanah, with the first of Tishrei. When it comes to the birth of Jewish people, the first month is Nisan, where Pesach takes place. So the Torah only knows of the latter. The Torah has never heard of what we know of as the month of Tishrei as the first month. We only know it as the seventh month. So on the seventh month, on the first day, so the first day of the seventh month, and Tishrei coming up a week from tonight is the first day of the seventh month. You're going to have a rest, a sabbatical, right? The same word, an, an, an extent, sort of the noun form of the verb Shabbat. You're going to have a resting day. 
one of the ways the Torah refers to a day separated from other days based on uh, what you are and are not allowed to do. Right? You are you are supposed to have a Shabbaton. And then the the way the trap is that that's the end of a phrase. Shabbaton. You should have a resting day. And at the end of the verse, we're going to find out more what it's about. And what do we find out? Zichron trua mikra kodesh. There are essentially four words in the first verse that we learn about the holiday that we now know as Rosh Hashanah that say anything distinguishing about it. I'm going to jump over those four words for a second before I translate them because the next verse, which is the last verse before this section goes into describing another holiday, is extremely generic. All forms of work don't do. That's just like other holidays. And you shall... Offer as a sacrifice an isha, a fire offering to God. I had a member of my community in Monroe who was a wonderful man, wonderful davener, wonderful um, uh, contributor to the community. He came to practicing, uh, pronouncing Hebrew and davening late. His earnestness and his kavanah was amazing, but he didn't have this from from childbirth, you know, as mother's milk. And when when he would come to read that verse as part, because that verse appears in part of the um, Musaf for the holidays. He could not but say, which means you shall sacrifice a woman to God. So the difference between saying and is very, very significant. You're not, no women are being sacrificed here, only a fire offering. Okay. Uh, let's see. Someone is in the waiting room. Okay. Um, so except for the four words that we've read in Hebrew but haven't translated, nothing about what the Torah says when it introduces this really important holiday to us tells us anything about the holiday. We have four words as clues. I want you to be explorers here. I want you to be thinkers having wiped away what you think you know about the holiday. Four words. Zichron, a, mem- a memory or remembrance. Trua, a remembrance of a trua. A trua is a blast, right? Leharia, the verb leharia, which is the word from which we get trua, which is one of the halachic names for one of the shofar blasts. It's not what it means here. Trua in this verse does not mean do, 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 do. Trua means the general concept of like raising your voice, not even necessarily with a ram's horn, just like a, um, like, like a, a, a war cry, a, 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 a regal, um, lifting of your voice. Mikra Kodesh, a, um, it's a day that is going to be called holy. So really of those four words that I said are the only distinguishing words in the verse, only two of them say anything ungeneric. Zichron Shua. So I ask you, if you were getting a PhD in the holiday we now know as Rosh Hashanah, and your only text or your primary text were this, you would have to say that on the first day of the seventh month, we have a holiday that is about what or doing what? Zichron Shua. Memory of the Big Bang. Memory of the Big Bang, maybe, right? Even how it's translated here, these two nouns, zichron and shua, are in smichut. They are they are possessive of one another, but smichut can be translated several different ways. So it could be memory of or memory through. It's translated here, I think this is JPS, as what kind of a zikharon, what kind of remembrance? The kind that you observe with a trua. So it really is a zikharon, but how do you act it out? By blasting. Or it's a zikharon of a trua. It is some kind of a commemoration or a memory of a time when blasts were made. 
That does not say you have to sit for five hours counting down the pages till you get to Hayom uh, Ta'amsenu and have a big meal with a round challah. Now, I joke because that's the true of nearly every holiday we observe. But this is pretty paltry. This is a pretty thin line from which we get the mountain of Rosh Hashanah. And there's nothing about repentance. There's nothing about uh, New Year. There's nothing about Rosh or Shana, right? And that this is the core text from uh, which we get the holiday. Let's look at what Rashi says. I want to remind you, for those of you who do not have familiarity studying with Rashi, although I know many of you do, Rashi is not a halachist. Rashi is not telling us the origins of Jewish law. Rashi is telling us what he thinks these verses meant in context. That does not mean that Rashi is right. But it means that we're getting a, a um, an indication of what Rashi thought the shots of the verses were. Even Rashi, I imagine, would have a hard time um, totally decoupling his commentary on these verses from his understanding of the holiday. And he lives a thousand or so years after the Talmud, so he's already living a rabbinic Rosh Hashanah. But let's trust him that in this verse, he's simply trying to understand what these words mean. The Dibure Hamachil, the words he's commenting on are the two significant words in the part in the verse, Zichron Shua. Look what he says. Zichron Psuke Zichronot Uvsuke Shofarot. He quotes the Sifra, which is an early rabbinic midrash, and he says, what kind of a zichron, a remembrance is this? By the way, even using the word zichron, we don't know what that means. Is that a recitation? A memory is not an actual, it's not a material thing. Are you just supposed to think? Or is it some kind of an event associated with a remembrance? We're not sure. But whatever it is, it's some kind of a remembrance or a recalling or a retelling or a reciting of verses that deal with zichron. Now, talk about a tautology. It's a zicharon of verses of zicharon. We don't even know what zicharon means, so we're not sure exactly what he means. Uvsukei shofarot, and verses dealing with shofar blasts. If those two words, zichronot, shofarot, ring a bell, right? Those are two of the three words that become some of the descriptors of what makes the Musaf and Rosh Hashanah different, because we have those three sections, malchiot, zichronot, shofarot, kingship, remembrances, it's not, even, it's not a great English word, and shofar blasts. The only one missing here is kingship. There's nothing about God as king in any of this material. But already Rashi is saying that whatever Zichron Shua meant had had something to do with a recall or a using of verses related to memory and related to shofar blast. What kind of memory? Lizkor lachem akedat Yitzchak shekarav tachtav ayom. Now here Rashi, I think, is doing some conflation in the sense that he cannot possibly fully separate his under, his read of this verse from what Rosh Hashanah turned out to be. And what Rosh Hashanah turned out to be was a holiday where shofar is central. And he's trying to figure out why. And we and it's hard to know what's the chicken and what's the egg here. He's clearly living in an era where it's already the case that the Torah reading for at least one of the days of Rosh Hashanah is Isaac being bound on the altar, right? Is Is the fact that shofar and a ram's horn coming first and that is what drives the association with the binding of Isaac or is it somehow earlier that the zikaron that we're supposed to be thinking about on this day is the binding of Isaac as the kind of the birth of our people or the near death of our people that turned into the birth of our people and that's why we have shofars attached to it I can't disentangle that neither can Rashi but what he means to say is how should you spend Rosh Hashanah to, to remember for yourselves the binding of Isaac where an isle, a ram, which has a horn, was sacrificed in place of him. That's all Rashi says. Barbie, you have a question or comment? 
Yeah, he he says it's remembrance and the shofar, whereas from above, the way you read it is loud blast, not necessarily meaning shofar. So it's interesting to me that he has specified what he thinks it is, which, of course, doesn't make it, as you said, Rashi's not always exactly correct, and he has his ideas. Just right. thought I'd throw that out. Good, Barbara. So, I mean, we could spend the hour just on this point, which we're not going to, but the word truah, which we hear as a type of shofar blast, does but does not necessarily mean a blast coming from a shofar. The, it comes from the verb leharia. Leharia means raise your voice in exaltation. The first line, the first psalm of, of um, Kabbalah Shabbat. Go let us exalt God. Let us raise our voices to the rock of our salvation. No one reads that verse and assumes that that verse is talking about a shofar. It means just an, an exaltation, um, like an explosion of exaltation. But Rashi here reads the true Ahir as specifically referring to the type of blast that comes from a shofar because, once again, because that's how the holiday has evolved to be. And so he might be here jumping a little bit out of direct shot interpreter of the verse and is impacted by how the rabbinic midrash, which produced the holiday of Rosh Hashanah, understood it. Diane? So if we weren't thinking about... Can you all hear when Diane's speaking? I will try and speak loudly. Okay. Yeah, I'm going to turn it while you're speaking. Okay. So um, if we weren't thinking about the way we currently celebrate the holiday and it's a joyous holiday, the shofar blast or the blast of a horn suggests war um, and and calling people to war. Yeah. So, um, I mean, obviously Rashi didn't go there. Right. And the extent to which shofar is mentioned in the Torah, it is indeed mentioned to herald the the, the, the coming battle, right? Um, if, if the main point of Rosh Hashanah, according to Rashi, according to this verse, is to read verses that deal with the binding of Isaac, which God are we invoking on this Rosh Hashanah? Which God are we remembering or is, or is remembering us or is celebrating? Is, which aspect of God comes to you when you think of the binding of Isaac? Is it a saving God? Is it an insane God? Is it a God that chose us? Is it a God that nearly eliminated us? Right? Like it's, it's actually hard to know. Even if we boil it down just to that, it's not Avinu Malkenu. Right? It, it, and it's not necessarily judge of life and death. It's not the God of Unatanatokef. It's a God of a very intense story from which we emerged, um, but it doesn't say a whole lot about a complex divine personality here. That's Rashi on this verse. Okay? Let's read Sforno. Sforno, Italian commentator, a couple of centuries after Rashi. And again, he is not a halachist. He's not doing Jewish law here. He's doing commentary in the Torah. Zichron Trua, a remembrance through Trua or a remembrance of Trua. Zichron Truat Melech Ba Yagilub Mokam. First time, I mean, first time I, or, I ordered these sources, not like the first time in rabbinic history, but the first time we're meeting on the page, a connection between the, this word Zichron or remembrance and the Trua and a king. What kind of a remembrance is this? It's a remembrance of the type of Trua-ing of a Melech Ba through which Yagilub Malkam through which a king's subjects rejoice in the reign, right? Okay, now we're in a little bit of a different uh, phase. 
Whereas Rashi is saying that this is binding of Isaac and Shofar, what Sforno is saying is there is something about crowning God king here, regaling God as king, the way you would, you know, think of the shofar blasts or the trumpet blasts that are uh, uh, heralding the arrival of Queen Elizabeth's coffin to its location, right? Pageantry, something that reinforces the authority or the honor we have of the king. Ke'amru, as it says, here he quotes a verse, if you're a, a regular daviner, you know this from one of the Psalms of the day. Harinu lelohim, harninu lelohim uzenu hariu. Raise your voice to God, our stronghold, hariu. Raise up that voice, hariu, again, truah, same verb. Not necessarily a shofar. So far, Sforna was not talking about a ram's horn. He's talking about letting the king know that you know that the king is there and that you recognize the king's kingship. And the reason is because it's on this kind of a day that we recognize that the king of kings is sitting on the chair of judgment. Very different than Rashi. There was no chair of judgment on Rashi, unless you consider God's coming down in the moment that Isaac is being bound as some as some kind of life or death judgment. It doesn't seem to be a judgment on, on Isaac's character. But here, Kiseidin is the king, is the chair on which a king or a judge sits to make a determination if the subjects are going to live or die. As it says later on in the verse, this is the same psalm, this is the psalm for Thursday morning. Uh, here's, the, here's the other one of the Hebrew roots that relates to shofar, right? you see tekiah there. Sound the shofar on the chodesh, on the month. This is a very hard verse to understand what it means in pshat. Some people read kesa, even though there's a hey at the end, not an aleph, as a, as a as a chair on the day on which the king would sit. Some people read it as an old Hebrew word meaning the beginning of something. Sound the shofar blast at the beginning, leyom chagenu, until the day of our holiday, our festival. Some people read that as Sukkot, but we don't know because Sukkot is called hechag, the holiday. Why? Kichok liyisrael hu. Because it's a law for Israel, Mishpat Lelohe Yaakov. It's a judgment for the God of Jacob. You might know that verse because we read that before the Amidah on Rosh Hashanah and also before Kiddush. You might hear it as, Tiku Bechodesh Ofar Bakes Eliyom Chageinu Kichok Yisrael Hu Mishpat Lelohe Yaakov. That's just before the Chatzik Kaddish of Erev Rosh Hashanah. Yitkadal, Yitkadal, etc. Vera'u'ilanu, Sforno says, it makes sense, it's appropriate for us, lismoach, to be happy, as yoter, even more than normal, al-shehum al-keinu, on the fact that this God is our king, sheyateh l'kilapei chesed, who will tend towards chesed, empathy, compassion. V'yizakeh otanu, yizakeh here literally means will make us meritorious, meaning it's the opposite of, um, it's, it's, um, the opposite of convicting, exonerating us. It will exonerate us as God judges us. So Sforno says, this is not going back to a biblical moment between Abraham and God. Zichron Shu'ah in the Torah was, hey, people of Israel, you're getting these holidays. What's the significance of this holiday? For you to acknowledge that God is your God, to sound blast, either with shofar your voices, to recognize that God is coming, and to be very grateful that you are the subject of a God who's going to judge you compassionately, favorably. Nothing in the verse suggests this reading. 
But it's impossible for medieval commentators to not be somewhat influenced by the development of the law. But if you went, if you were living in King David's time, right? Let's imagine King David, the actual human, not only the 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 um, the fantastical legacies about him. We really do believe, even historically, that a King David lived. King, there was a king who united the kingdoms, or King Solomon did exist and build the temple. Right? And, and there were many kings, both good and bad, after him. A thousand years before the Mishnah was written, on the first day of the seventh Hebrew month, be very interesting to ask yourself what you think was happening those days. Were people gathering in courtyards and lifting their voices to God? Were they blowing a shofar? They weren't doing a hundred blasts by page 170, right? Um, there was no sense of, um, of your, using this as a time of year for self-reflection. In fact, this is very passive. Just be grateful that God is your God and God's going to be compassionate to you. Right? If anything, rabbis tell congregants on this season, this should be a very active holiday. What you, you know, don't rely on God to give you salvation. Rely on you to find something new and salvatory inside of you. So it's interesting to pull back the layers and see what it might have been then. Comments, questions? Okay. Shifting gears a bit without having resolved everything about those early verses, but you get some sense of the of the uh, early DNA of the holiday. When the rabbis are coming to discuss Rosh Hashanah in Masechet Rosh Hashanah, Chaktrait Rosh Hashanah, which as we'll see later is not only or even mostly about what you and I think of as the word Rosh Hashanah, one of the things they were interested in were was creating, sometimes in real time and sometimes ex post facto, the rituals that we have inherited, and they were interested in great detail, and they were interested in great detail about the one word that is distinguishing in the verses that makes Rosh Hashanah differently, and that is Tru'ah. By the time the rabbis are dealing with this, this is, this is probably 3rd or 4th century CE, so you know, 1,300 years after King David, there's already a sense that the word Tru'ah is a technical term. It doesn't just mean exalting a god who's a king who's arriving or a god. It means a type of shofar blast that you do this holiday. Now, for, to understand this text, don't think Chu'ah the way we think of Chu'ah. We have names for each blast that emerged at some point during the rabbinic time, but this question is not asking wh- how, what is the measure of what we think of as the third of four blasts. This is not Chu'ah as in Tekiah, sh- uh, Shvarim, Chu'ah, Tekiah, but Chu'ah generic. What is this Chu'ah which we are obligated to do on the high holidays? What kind, what amount of shofar blasts? Look how detailed the rabbis get. Kishalosh Yivavot. Like three, I translated it rather colorfully, staccato whimpers. And I'm translating it that way because of what's coming, right? So the first answer in the Talmud is, what do we have to do? The main understanding of, of, of Rosh Hashanah is to take a shofar and to do like, do, do, do. And you're done. Makes services go a lot easier. It reminds me of that text in, in Masech Shabbat that the um, that the primary obligation of Hanukkah is not for each person in the house to light a Hanukkah with a number of candle, candles representing the number of days, but one lamp in, somewhere in your house each day, one light. According to the Talmud, that's all you need to do. Right? What we do is an expanded version of Mahadrin Mina Mahadrin, the most, the most glorified way of doing the holiday. So the first answer to the Talmud is, what's the trua? Again, meaning the entire obligation to be Lahariya, to raise our voices in exaltation to God. Just three, huh, 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 huh. But wait, 
the Talmud says. That means that's a, when you start with the Baha, the Talmud is is bringing a source that um, conflicts or, reason, or, or is, is is in conflict with the previous source. But it says in an earlier uh, Tanaitic source of Brita, Shi'or Chua Kishlosha Shvarim. But we have a text that says no. The measure of a chua is not three yivavot, which is the reason why I translated yivavot as staccato is because the shlosha shivarim. Again, don't when you hear shivarim, don't hear what we think of as a shvarim. Think of it as as a Hebrew word describing a type of sound. Three breaks, right? So if yivavot is ah ah ah, shvarim would be ah ah. Huh, which is actually quite similar to what we think of as shvarim now. So which is right? Do you get away with, do you fulfill your obligation to doing truah Rosh Hashanah with three short blasts or three longer blasts or three long black uh, blasts with breaks? Amar Abaye. Abaye was a, uh, a later sage. Bahaplige. They really are arguing, meaning sometimes when two sources will be in conflict with each other, a later sage will say, no, they're actually not in conflict. They're, they're, they, you don't realize that they're in agreement. Abai says, no, they're actually disagreeing. Dichtiv, because it says, and the verse um, uh, elsewhere in the Torah, where it, uh, the one in um, Parshat um, Penchas, Yom Chua Yelachem, you should have a day of Chua, Umetargeminan, and we translated it there. That's a technical term in the um, in the Talmud. What does Umetargeminan mean? Whose who's translation? There, you know this. Who's starting? Is this Yonatan? Or Onkelis, right? Okay. So basically the Talmud was aware that there was a translation of the Torah into Aramaic, and they often use that to, as a way of saying that this is what the people who knew the language really the best thought the word meant. If you open up the 29th chapter of the Book of Numbers on the verse that says that on this day it's a Yom Chuah, the Aramaic translation, I don't remember if this is Onkelos or Yonatan, the two main translations into the into Aramaic of Hebrew, Yom Yivava Yelachon. So the word Trua was turned into an Aramaic word Yivava. Hold that thought because this is going to be a two-part proof. Uchtiv, and it also says in the fifth book of Shoftim from the um, the Haftorah of uh, Bishalach, Vatiabev et Sisra. Sisera's mother, Sisera who was killed rather violently, when she saw him with a stake through his head, she wailed him. She bewailed him. Tiyabev. She wailed, she cried over him. Mar Savar, one of the two sources, right? The one of the one that calls it Yevaba, and one of them calls it Shvarim. One of them believes Ganuche Ganach. One of them thinks that a tia, what does it mean to do a Yevava? Uh, is a, a kind of a moaning sound. Umar Savar Yelule Yelil. And one understands it as a whimper. The, the, this may sound very, very picayune. I'm going to uh, bust it out in a second. They're having a description of w- what is this holiday about? The holiday, is it, is it, ha, 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 or, ha, ha, ha. That's what they're discussing. Whereas I think that the ganuche ganach, the moanings are the longer ones that might even have a break, and that the yalule yalil are the shorter ones, right? The type of whimpering that has no, you can't even, you can't even take a pause. On that source, 
That's the next source we're reading too. We have a commentary by the Torah Tmima. The Torah Tmima was written by Baruch Halevi Epstein. He was a, a sage from Pinsk. He wrote a wonderful commentary um, called the Torah Tmima, the Pure Torah, where he uh, collects rabbinic material under nearly every verse of the Torah. And then he gives a running commentary as to why uh, this source is interesting on that verse. And he is commenting on, you see where it comes from, from Numbers 29.1, because he gives this commentary on the verse that is quoted in our source in Rosh Hashanah, and he's trying to explain what's going on. So this is now late 19th century verse. Bi'ur ha'inyan. Here's what this is all about, and this is what I think is interesting. Kiman desvarale kishlosha koshehu, the one who thinks that you get away on Rosh Hashanah with shlosha kochot, any three forceful blasts, kolshu, of any size. Svirale, he believes, dehaperush, that the explanation, yivava, yelule yelel, that what does the word yivava mean, which was the Aramaic translation of shua, it's kind of, uh, the, the, the quickest way you could whimper, keadam haboche, like a person crying, umekonen, who's, who is wailing, Kolot k'tsarim, short bursts of a cry, smuchin zelazeh. I think of someone crying without taking a break. <laughs> that would be that. Uman damar kishiyur shlosh the one who believes that the way you do chu'ah on Rosh Hashanah is for three broken up, that's how I'm dealing with the word shvarim, which means shever, to break up, broken up whales. Dahainu behem shechmat, a little bit of an extension. Sfirle, he believes, the Yevava, that Aramaic word Yevava, which was the translation of Chua, Inyano Ganuche Ganach, moaning types of sounds, Kadam Hagoneach Milibo, right? Someone who is moaning from his heart. That's not, <laughs> that's, Oi, Oi, Oi. These are different ways of expressing um, distress. Kederachacholim, like sick people. Shema'arichin begenichotehen who extend their groaning. And this is the true understanding of what the day of Chua should be about. If that's the case, then the measure of Chua, again, not that nine, the nine-note Chua that you and I know, but the, the word that explains our main obligation in Rosh Hashanah, because that's all the Torah said. It should be the measurement of three extended blasts, or, and here's how you see the law forming, the uh, measurement of nine blasts that are short, because nine short blasts are like three long blasts. This use of the word shua is in quotation marks, like our understanding of the word shua, nine blasts. Every extended blast Utsar betocho has collected within it shalosh kachot k'tzarot, three shorter ones. Ve'lachain, therefore, mivuar b'gmara is brought in the gemara. Shatikain Rabbi Abahu, Rabbi Abahu came later on in the Talmud and said, and he was living in Kesari, Caesarea. Litkoa shlosh pa'amim, you should blast the shofar three times. Anyone know what that taf shin rish taf acronym stands for? Tekia. Shvarim, the resh is for trua because the tough can't be tekiah because there's already the, the tough was the tough can't use stand for trua because the tough was used for trua for for tekiah so the resh stands for trua 
So, three times, Tekiah, Shfarim, Trua, Tekiah. Three times, Tekiah, Shfarim, Tekiah. Three times, Tekiah, Trua, Tekiah. Uvazeh, and by means of that, Yotzim, Yedea, Svekot. You basically fulfill all the doubts. This is a long text way of saying that the reason why we have our shofar blasts, which are the most dramatic part of our high holiday service, and why it's so extended is because the rabbis could not agree on a Hebrew word. They couldn't agree on the Hebrew word shu'ah, which is translated into Aramaic as yevava, and so they, since they couldn't agree, they said, okay, let's do it both ways, and we'll know that by the end, we basically fulfilled our obligation. The rabbis agree halachically that the primary thing you're supposed to do on Rosh Hashanah is to sound the shofar, either to be a remembrance of the binding of Isaac or to be a remembrance that the king is coming. Again, we could do Rosh Hashanah in nine minutes. Everything else is added on ex post facto. Barbara, is your hand up again or still? Again, okay. Uh, Two things. Number one, when did the... uh, uh, Takiya Gadola come in, and when did it get established that we have to do a hundred blows, not just what's described here? Yeah, much later. Um, I do not remember if the phrase Takiya Gadola appears in Talmudic literature. Certainly by the time you get to the early medieval codes, it's there. The notion of a hundred, um, I once knew it and I forgot, it might even be as late as Kabbalistic. But the Talmud has no sense of there being a hundred blasts, as far as I as far as I remember, um, and that's just the expansion of this one Hebrew word truah, which is the again the only distinguishing word in the Torah that tells us what this holiday is about. Okay, let's move on. One would think that if tractate Rosh Hashanah, one of the sixty-three tractates of the Talmud and thirty-seven of the Gemara. It's called Rosh Hashanah, that most of it would be explaining the holiday that we know and love, in the same way that if you open up Masechet Sukkah, it is indeed the case. Most of the tractate of Sukkah is dealing with how to build a Sukkah, how to observe a Sukkah. Most of the tractate of Megillah, it deals with that holiday. There's a lot of other stuff in there too, because the Talmud jumps around. You would think that most of Masechet Rosh Hashanah would be dealing with that. And you would think that just as the first mission of Sukkot talks, talks about the holiday, and the first Mishnah of Shabbat talks about the holiday, that the first Mishnah of Masechet Rosh Hashanah would talk about the holiday we know and love. If you haven't ever read the first Mishnah of Rosh Hashanah, you're in for a treat and perhaps a surprise. This is the first text in the tractate called Rosh Hashanah. Again, I know I've said it, I'm repeating myself, but I want to be clear, a phrase that does not appear in the Torah. Arba Rashi Shanimhem. There are four Rosh Hashanahs. Already we've learned something interesting, that the phrase that we know of as Rosh Hashanah is at least or at most one-fourth of the volume of content that was once associated with a phrase the beginning of the year. Meaning the rabbis did not hear the word Rosh Hashanah and think Kittel or think only Kittel and two days in Shul and Yantif. They thought it as a generic term that there were four Types times during the year that could be considered the head of a year. Let's see if any of them are the ones that we know. Be'achad b'Nisan on the first day of Nisan, so two weeks before Pesach, Rosh Hashanah l'Malachim v'LaRegalim. It's the um, first of the year for kings and for festivals. 
If you had to guess, right? You think if anyone here, you know, was ever, you know, think of it like how there are fiscal years, there are tax years, right? And um, there are thoroughbred years, horse years. Horse, horse years, right? And so we, January 1st is the time that the odometer turns from 2022 to 2023. But depending on where you are in the society, there are several different places where you're beginning a new year, right? I don't, I don't know what the date is for thoroughbreds, but there's a date by which if, if a horse is born a certain number of days before a certain date, then by the, let's call it March 1st. I'm not sure it is. By the time they get to the March 1st, even if they're only three months old, they are now Two, uh, they're, they've hit their first birthday already, and they can, and then now a, a, a second year horse, and that determines, you know, what races they can be in. So, if 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 you had to think that there would be a reason for why kings would have a Rosh Hashanah and holidays would have a Rosh Hashanah, what would you guess the the rationale is? There has to be a legal reason. This is not just like conceptual. What do we think it is? In the Torah, when we mention the three uh, Pesach, uh, Sukkot, and um, and, uh, and Shavuot, Pesach is always comes first, I think. Doesn't Excellent. It? And why would it matter? Like, what's the what is the halachic situation that a Jew might be in, such that it would it would matter to know that. Um, when you get to the first of Nisan, you're starting a new cycle of holidays. Why is that significant? Aside, like, aside from, for a, for a conversation piece, can you think of a religious reason why? And there's a reason why you might not because it's rather obscure and it's no longer, um, no longer really obtains in our uh, society. Yes, Diane? You have to get home to have a Pesach. But wouldn't you have to get home to get a Pesach sacrifice whether we consider Pesach to be the second holiday of the year or the third holiday of the year? Why is, what's the religious, um, uh, situation you might be in such that you re, by the time you get to Nissan, oh, the holidays are starting over again. Because we actually don't think that way, right? We think the holidays start over again, Rosh Hashanah. The, That's not because when, when the, we left, uh, when, when we gathered up everything and walked out of Egypt. That's why it might be that we consider the month that Pesach falls, Nisan, to be the first month because of the birth of our people. That's a wonderful concept. But for the mission to be talking about it, there has to be a practical implication. The practical implication that you want to... It has to do with the sacrifices. Say a little bit more. I'm not sure why, but I think that it has to do with the order of bringing the sacrifices. And maybe it also has to, since it's for kings, um, it has to do with gifts that you had to bring the kings in a particular order. Why it wouldn't be a cycle and would be... You're starting with a particular sacrifice. I'm not sure. You're in the right realm. Okay. Most people understand that the we'll do the second one first. What, what what does it mean to say that you start a new year of holidays? If you had made a neder, a vow, I think of Kol Nidre, that I make a vow that I'm not going to take anything belonging to Larry Herman, even as a gift or a loan, for this year. I'm I, I've taken too much from him. I'm going to hold myself back. Right. Um, or I make a vow that I not that I'm not not that I'm withhold myself that I'm going to actually I make a vow that I'm going to give um, Larry Herman ten of my sheep this year. Right? If you whenever you made the vow in the year, once you get to the, the um, first of Nisan, if you have not fulfilled your vow by then, independent of when you made it, you have violated your obligation to fulfill that vow. Right? Or if you've held off because it was a vow of restraint, you've completed it. 
right? You've completed your vow and it starts over again, which is not the normal way we think of the significance of the order of holidays, right? We might think of it in terms of like the, the, the only way in which the order of the holidays makes halachic sense that I can think of today. There's an interesting set of rules for what you do if you are in Israel, the state of Israel, for Yantif, and you're a, uh, a chutzlar, Jew, diaspora Jew, what do you do for Yantif? I know you guys deal with the opposite of that, because you still think about, you're, you're in the diaspora, but you import like an Israel approach to observing law. So, listen, there's there's many answers to that, as there are Roshe Yeshiva in, in Israel. If you go to Israel for the year, right, um, can you do one day Yantif? So some people say, in order for you to do one day Yantif, you're in Israel, you have to be there for a year, like an entire year. Some people say you only have to be there for all three holidays. And some people say you have to be there for all three holidays in a row. And what counts is in a row? Mm-hmm. Starting with Pesach, which means that if you're there for a gap year, you're in trouble. Right? If you come, if you go, if you started your year now and you got there before Sukkot, right, and you're staying through Shavuot, you say, I'm going to be here for a whole year. Sukkot, Pesach, Shavuot. I'm basically an Eretz Israel Jew this year. I'll do one day Yantif. The most stringent opinion would say, holidays begin at Pesach, my friend. Gap years may begin in September, but holidays begin at Pesach, and unless you were going to be there for Pesach, Shavuot, Sukkot, it's not considered a year. Uh, we just finished the U.S. Open, so I'm thinking of tennis, right, the difference between winning four grand slams in a row versus all in a calendar year. It's the same accomplishment, but it matters, right? Martina Navratilova once won six straight Grand Slam tournaments. The last three of 1985 or something, and the first three of 1986, she's not credited with winning a Grand Slam because we begin the Grand Slam year on January 1st. They begin the holiday year with Nissan. Yeah. So it's a little bit like Shemitah and Yovel and the Jubilee in that it doesn't, you don't start counting from when you incurred a debt or when you were enslaved, it's wherever you are in that cycle, you ended at a certain point. So here we're saying you have to begin at a certain point. Correct. Or or end. Or or your cycle of, of a of a vow is over. Going back to Malachim, and I know this feels very far away from Rosh Hashanah, but this is why I'm teaching this to you, because the rabbi's understanding of Rosh Hashanah is not our understanding of Rosh Hashanah. Kings, it's simply I think of all of those um Verses in Tanakh, Vayhi by Bashna Hashlishit Lamalcho Melech Yehu, right? And the first day of the second month of the third year of so and so's reign. When does the reign begin? Right? It's not from the day that the king was crowned. It's it's how however many days a king reigned up until first of Nisan. By the time they hit the first of Nisan, they hit their first anniversary. It would not surprise me, by the way, if there's some, something like that arcane built into the British uh, um, regal system, right? We count how many total years she reigned, but it would not surprise me if somehow like the anniversary of her of her becoming queen is not just the day she became queen, but, but whatever the Brits say is the beginning of a regal year. Okay, we, yes? We know, we know that Charles isn't, isn't going to have a coronation for several months. Right, but he's already king. But he's already king. Right, so it would be interesting to know when... She, she, was, she was queen for a year before she was coronated. Right. So I imagine when she celebrated her jubilee, it was from the moment she ascended the throne, but maybe yes. the moment she was yes. crowned. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure it was. By the way, you haven't made a, a vow not to accept that apple holla, right, next Sunday? No, I've made a vow to myself to consume all of it very quickly after I receive it. <laughs> um 
the joke, it's not even a joke. Barbara makes a delicious, moist, chewy apple challah, which you should all be uh, um, meritorious to eat at some point. Okay, that's the first the first law of tractate Rosh Hashanah has nothing to do with Rosh Hashanah, at least as we think about it. Be'echad be'elul, on the first day of Elul, which is the day that we are now three weeks past, Rosh Hashanah l'ma'aser behema. It's the, it's the fiscal year for the tithe of animals, right? So if you had flocks of animals, right, rather than produce, you were responsible for giving a tenth of them as a tithe to the Levites, right? You're not, it was e- either the actual animals or a, um, or the value thereof. And what this means is you can't tithe new animals with old animals or vice versa, right? So if, um, these laws are a little bit obscure, but you, you, there had to be a, a, a line in the calendar that says your the animals that you came into uh, owner that were born or that you came into ownership of before this day had to be tithed with animals that you had from before that. Once you hit the first of Elul, that fiscal year resets. Okay, <laughs> Rabbi Eliezer. Rabbi Shimon Omrim, so there now there is two rabbis disagreeing with what we call the Tanakama, the anonymous position of the Mishnah, Biachad Betishrei. No, they say that the cutoff for when um, the tithing of animals takes place is not the first day of Elul, but the first day of Tishrei, which is the first time we're notice, we're mentioning a date that we associate with Rosh Hashanah, because the first day of Tishrei is a week from tonight, actual Rosh Hashanah. But it's not the Rosh Hashanah that we that we're thinking about. Biachad b'tishrei. Now we're back to the anonymous voice. On the first day of Tishra, Rosh Hashanah Lashanim. It's the first of the year for years, right? For years that we're counting what? Since when? Creation, fifty-seven eighty-two, right? Yeah. Does not say it's the it's the time of year that we do tshuva. It doesn't even say it's the year that we blow shofar. There's no even reference in this Mishnah to Yom Chua Yelachem. It's just a, a, a halachic um, specificity that that's when we, we count years because the rabbis understood that the world was created on Rosh Hashanah, and so it gets one year older on that day. And not only for years, but Shmitin, Shemitah, that's when the Shemitah cycle begins, Yovalot for the Jubilee, the 50th year, La nitia vela yirakot. What do you think it means that it's the it's it's a fiscal year for nitia, which means planting? What law might rely on? Or we need to know how old a plant is. Orla. What's orla? Correct. Right. So um, if you plant a fruit tree, the first three years you can't prune it. For the fourth year you can prune it. You can't eat it. After that, you can eat it. This is where we get the um, upshore in, in, a, in a Hasidic community. So therefore, you have to know. It, it, it wouldn't make sense for farmers around the country to have different dates that they counted their trees by. It's not, by the way, if you planted the day before. I think it's 45 days. I have to check. I think if you, as long as you planted this tree 45 days before the first of Tishrei, on the first of Tishrei, this tree is now a year old. And now it's beginning its second year. And for Yerakot, um, this is not for that law does not apply to vegetables, but there's also tithing of vegetables, just as there's a date by that you determine, um, you know, when you're using which vegetables to do the tithe. Uh, for uh, vegetables, it's the first of Tishrei. Be'echad b'Shvat on the first day of Shvat. If you if you know the, that month, you know it because of what we're going to get to the end of this Mishnah. Rosh Hashanah la'ilan. It is the uh, Rosh Hashanah for uh, tr- uh, trees. Some people erroneously believe that that's 
for Orla. It's not for Orla. It's for also tithing. How uh, the, 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 the age of a tree is based on first of Tishrei, when it was planted, but the tithing cutoff is around Shvat, which fru- the fruits that were ripened and were uh, harvested before that day have to be tithed amongst other fruit from that era, and then after that day it switches over. According to Beit Shammai, who's almost never agreed with, but Beit Hillel says, Hillel says, no, it's the 15th of Shvat, and if you spell out 15 with a number, it's Tetvav, because we don't want to write you at Hey, because that would be writing out God's name as a number, so instead of writing 10-5, we write 9-6, and Tetvav together spells 2, and 2 Bishvat is a holiday. Now, there is a lot of Gemara on this, but I wanted to show you that if you were looking at Tractate Rosh Hashanah, the first Mishnah, there is a reference to the one part of our Rosh Hashanah, which is Hayom Harat Olam. Today is the birthday of the world. This is, this is the universal part of that holiday. But there is no reference to how we observe Rosh Hashanah. It's a, it's a, um, a calendar issue. It's not a personal growth issue. Why, why is the tree date so important? But, uh, Shavuot is when the time that we plant for fruits and vegetables for food. It, so it grows over the summer and we pick it at Sukkot time. Why isn't there a new year for that? Well, there's a new year for all of the things that would happen in that. So, so the fruits that, or the, or the harv, or the, or the, um, produce that will eventually ripen that we bring first fruits of a Shavuot, well, if, if it's if it's a yerek, if it's a vegetable, its Rosh Hashanah was um, on the first day of uh, Tishrei, and if it's fruits, um, then it is on the on the on the first or the fifteenth day of Shvat. So it's there. It's just not referring to that particular part of the ritual. It's, there's, there's nothing ritual about this. This is legal. Okay. Okay. I know we're jumping around because I wanted to share with you a bunch of different sources that dance around uh, what Rosh Hashanah is really about so that you had a sense of what it might have meant to our ancestors before we get to some of the stuff that's more familiar. Okay, uh, we're jumping to verse nine, uh, chapter 90 of the book of Tehillim. So on its own uh, merit, Beterem harim yuladu, before the mountains were born, Eretz, and you fashioned the land, the Tevel, and the world. And from time immemorial, Atael, you are God. So the author of this psalm is basically saying, God, you and the mountains you've made have been here before time. Tashev Enosh Adaka. It's a really hard phrase to translate into English. Tashev means to return, but to return causative, like to return something. Enosh means a person. Ad Daka. Until it's often translated as dust. The root dalad kaf aleph has to do with crumbling, uh, pulverizing something. Something like you return, it's understood to mean you return man to dust, meaning we are mortal. Vatomer, and you say, shuvu bnei adam, and you say to a mortal, return, you humans. It's unclear if in this verse, it's talking about our mortality, or I'll say it this way, it seems more likely that it's talking about our mortality and the infinitesimal length of our lives in relationship to God time. But you're going to see in the next Midrash that they're going to take out that word shuv. This is the first time in this class that we've had the, had the word return shuv and say, ah, this is not a reference to returning to dust, 
but returning to a crumbled, um, humbled part of ourselves. Is your hand up, Barbara? No. Oh, I can't hear you, but I think you don't. Okay. Midrash. No. no, no I was oh, okay. saying hello to Marco. Oh, hello, Marco. Um, Midrash Tehillim. So this is the uh, Agadic Midrash on the book of Psalms. On the phrase, Tashev Enosh Adaka, you God who've been here forever and whose mountains have been here forever, you return men to crumbled things. Amar Rabbi Abahu, we met him before. Rabbi Abahu said, Gidola Tshuva Shekadma Levriyat Olam. Tshuva is so great for it pre-existed the world. How do we know? Shenemar, because it says, Beterem Harim Yuladu, before even the mountains existed, Tashev Enosh Adaka, you invite men, I'm translating in the way I think it's quoting the verse, to return themselves to their component parts. You, you invite them into tshuva. So the rabbis are very much aware that the Torah has nothing to say about tshuva. But the rabbis not only want to link Rosh Hashanah to the verses in Torah that deal with, Rosh, deal with the, the, the day of Shua, they want to say it pre-existed. This is a rabbinic trick. The rabbis love to imagine things that were, exi- that were in existence even before God created the world. Like they were just waiting to be brought into, in, in, into being. And there's a, um, a Mishnah in Pirkei Avot that lists all sorts of things that pre-existed the world. I love this notion that before the earth, forget about before people were created, before the earth was created, God created tshuva. God created the opportunity and the obligation to work ourselves down to the bone this crumbled self, so that we could rebuild ourselves from there. Breshit Rabbah, this is the classic commentary on the book of Breshit, has another wonderful image of how old and how venerable and how central Truva is from the Cain and Abel story. You might remember that at the end of the Cain and Abel story, after Cain is chastised by God for committing the first act of violent murder, we have a great and interesting verse. Kain left from God's presence. If you're just studying Torah, what's the question you have in that verse? How can you leave God's presence? Right? So what does it mean? Like, when are, when are we not in God's presence? Right. So we have this verse. We know what it means. The Torah is setting us up into imagining a conversation between Cain, I'm going to call him Cain, and God. So the way that the Torah says that the conversation is over is saying that Cain left God's presence. But midrashically, we're saying, what, what could it possibly mean to imagine that Cain left from before God? And there are a series of opinions. Mehechan Yatza. How did he possibly leave? Or what did it look like when he left? Rabbi Yudan B'Shain Rabbi Ivo Amar. It's interesting that the Midrash um, moves forward with lots of rabbis saying things in the name of lots of rabbis. Sometimes it's the actual rabbi speaking. For some reason, this Midrash is rabbis quoting rabbis. So Rabbi Yudan said in the name of Rabbi Ivo, two very uncommon um, rabbis in rabbinic literature. You do not hear them uh, a lot from them. He shield varim lachorav viatsa. He... The, the image here is someone taking a satchel and throwing it behind his back. He threw, and I under I translate this both as words or things, because it could mean one of two things. He threw things behind him and he left, 
or he threw words behind him and he left. In what kind of image? It's a very hard phrase to translate. Like one who steals the mind of the supernal one. Gnevat da'at is an interesting halachic category. You can't translate it because translating it loses the meaning. If you translate, it means stealing the mind. It means to deceive a bit. It means to insult. It means to uh, uh, kind of like oppress with your words. One of the examples of Gneva Dad is, um, I know you're already busy this Friday night. And so I say, hey, do you want to come over to my house for Shabbat dinner? I've just committed Gneva Dad because I have stolen from you by giving you the impression that I was being hospitable to you when I knew you would have to turn down the offer. Right? That's considered Gnevatat because I, I have information that you don't have and I have somehow used that to, to occupy or to acquire some consciousness of yours. So what could it possibly mean here that Cain took either his stuff like in a huff or he took the words that God had said to him, words of reproach, and he threw it behind him and he left saying, I don't care or I'm not paying attention or, or I'm going to pretend to take this sincerely, but I'm not, but I'm not really going to. It's hard to know in what way Cain was um, guilty of Gneva Dad here, but it's not a positive thing. That's one possibility. Rabbi Berechia b'shem Rabbi Elazar b'Rabbi Shimon said. So Rabbi Recha said the name of Rabbi Elazar, the son of Rabbi Shimon. He left like someone who is. A translator here is hypocritical. Anyone know of a um, of a place in the Torah where the word mafris is used? Mafris pas parsa is someone who splits their hoof. Lahafris is to separate. So somehow it's being used here as a way of separating yourself from your principles and and acting hypocritically. Uchemirameh, someone who is deceiving God. So he left in a way that he was. Um, pretending to be righteous even though he was not, and even though how could you possibly deceive God because God knows everything, Cain was finding a way to, you know, have false piety. Rabbi Chama, so both of these uh, first two explanations of Cain are very un, um, uncomplimentary. Rabbi Chama, Rabbi Chanina, Rabbi Yitzchak said, Chama said in the name of Rabbi Chanina, son of Rabbi Yitzchak, Yatzah no, don't read this cynically. He left very glad. Based on or connected to what you say, we had this verse in Rashi class not so long ago. This is when God tells Moses that Aaron is going to come greet him happily when Moshe goes back to Egypt. And so since it says there, Yotzei, um, to leave to greet you and the context there was happiness so true so too the yatsa here Cain left happy how could he possibly left happy pagabo adam harishon adam his father met him along the way adam said what happened and today was your your court case with god right you know so it's so, so bizarre and 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 fantastical not how dare you kill my other son but hey today was your day in court kind how did it go amarlo asiti chuva venit pasharti i did chuva dad and i was acquitted hitkhil adam harishon mitapakh alpanav you might think that adam would say what a travesty in a fit of rage you killed your brother my son and you quickly got acquitted uh uh-uh. uh 
Adam Arishon began to slap his face. Metapecha panav is something like, oh, my goodness, like in, 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 in surprise, but we're not sure yet. Is it happy surprise or despair? Amar, and Adam said, Kahi kochashel tshuva. Look at the power of tshuva. Vadilo yahiti yodei. I had no idea. I didn't know you could repent. I didn't know that there was um, a, a day of judgment from which you could leave with your sins having been cleaned. No mention of his fury at losing a child. He's simply amazed as he's getting to know the world. And here we're associating with Rosh Hashanah because Rosh Hashanah, we imagine, and Adam and Chava were born on the Rosh Hashanah, and they're just learning about their world. And and don't ask the question, well, well, several years have gone by because Cain's already in the world. All of those first two days are considered like, you know, the, a primordial mush. Miyad Ahmad Adam Hamishon. This is where the Midrash loses a little bit of focus. Adam stands up and says, he starts quoting a psalm, right? Remember, this is um, uh, this notion that we, we have no problem imagining the first being Adam knowing verses from psalms that King David supposedly wrote. Means more sheerly, Yom HaShabbat. Um, what a great thing it is to sing on the day of Shabbat. Uh, we're not sure exactly what the connection is. Amar Rabbi Levi, Hamizmor, Hazat, Adam Rishon, Amaro. This Tehillim, this, this psalm, which you think King David wrote, Adam the first actually said it, wrote it, created it. Venishtakach Midoro, it was um, forgotten from the generations. Uva Moshe Vechicho, all of a sudden Moses came around and renewed it. Al Shemo, on um, I'm not sure if the Shmo here means Moshe attributed it to his own name or attributed it to Adam's name. Either way, it's strange because we attribute all of the Psalms to David. It is a song for the day of Shabbat. It is good to acknowledge God. It's an odd proof text. The only thing I can make sense of is that, that Adam is realizing that if you bury yourself before God and acknowledge Right, lehodot ladonai is not necessarily just to thank God, but to acknowledge God. If you acknowledge God as the rule of the universe, then things will turn out well. Nothing particularly Shabbistic, Shabbistic about it, but he learned from his son, who had a judgment before God, that if you bear your soul, and this is the Rosh Hashanah-ish piece of it, and you do tshuva, and you acknowledge that God is in control, then you can leave Sameach. Right? The rabbis believe that Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur were days of great joy. The only time we really experience that on, on our, in our modern observance of Yom Kippur is if you stay through the Avodah service and the Mare Kohen uh, piyut, uh, which talks about the Kohen Agadol, who would leave the Holy of Holies after having encountered God with face aglow and tremendous smile, having achieved expiation of sin for all the Jewish people. Hooray! We generally don't hooray so much in Yom Kippur, except maybe the final shofar blast. The rabbis thought of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur as hooray days because tshuva is possible. Your past does not determine your future. Redemption is within your hands. God is a compassionate God. Linking back to the first sources we read, that king who you are regaling with trumpet blasts on this day, it's a king who's going to be soft and tender with you, and you have a chance of liberation, and redemption. It's a thin connection between biblical Rosh Hashanah and rabbinic Rosh Hashanah, but it's there. Le- uh, yes, Larry. Completely just doesn't add much, but it's interesting that it talks about Uvam Moshe, that he shows Al Shemo, but that's not the psalm that we read that way, but it's the psalm that we had before, 90, 
Moshe, Ishalohim. Yeah. Yeah. I, I will say that I don't quite understand that piece. And I don't even know if the, if the Shmo is again Moshe's name or somehow Moshe gave Adam credit for it. There's got to be a sub, a subreddit on this in rabbinic literature that discusses, discusses what's going on here. The last little piece I wanted to teach you because, um, Going back, we, we've now kind of moved our way from um, biblical Rosh Hashanah and rabbinic calendar years to midrashic understandings of the significance of tshuva that's sort of connected with the beginning of the of the world to the Rosh Hashanah when we know and love. Because if we were to do Rosh Hashanah as it was described in the Torah, it might be quick, but it would be very dry. And because it's just not the case that every modern Jew can easily associate God as king, such that blowing shofar blast to God is enough. When we think of blowing shofar blast, for whose ears is it? Who? What do you say? Say it out loud, Barbara. For everyone's, for ours. Our own. Ears. Shofar is supposed to awaken us. That's a really nice image. It's not the Torah's image. The Torah's image is, is to uh, herald the fact that God is coming. We have converted this ancient holiday of, of blasting sounds into a holiday of introspection and working on yourself. And I wanted to end with one of my favorite texts, Anshuva, by uh, Rabbi Nachman of Braslav. So he, a lot of his teachings are called Likute, little, little um, gleanings of different topics. So Likute Eitzot, his gleanings of counsel. Kodem ha before you do tshuva, adayin ein lo havaya, you do not exist. Just let that phrase penetrate. Don't fight with it in your head. Don't argue against it. Just ask yourselves what he's asking us to consider. Before you do tshuva, before you repent from the wrongdoings, you have no havaya. By the way, havaya is not just a word that means being. It's also an anagram for yod heh God's name. Right? So just as some people in renewal Judaism, they don't say Baruch Atah Hashem, they say Brucha At Havaya, because they want to say God's name in the way that actually represents what God is, which is all of being. Here, I think uh, Rabbi Nachman is playing both games. You, you don't have existence and you don't have God. If you're holding on to a sin, you might be breathing, but you're not really alive. Ki'ilo adayin lo nidhava ba'olam. It's as if you had never been created. Meaning you're here, but your life is not animated if you're holding on to a place where you owe someone an apology. And it's not even just owing someone an apology if there's, if there's blemishes on your soul that you have not yet effaced. Kitovlo, this is harsh, shaloni ra ra. It would have been better had you not been born. If you're walking around this world with tshuva left to do, does your existence really merit being here? You might as well not come into being and not sinned. When you come to purify yourself, and to do tshuva, you prepare yourself. It's an interesting phrase. I'm not a Rabbi Nachman scholar, but you, you, you basically you prepare yourself so that you will be a being in the world so that you'll be alive on a level that you haven't been because you've been carrying around tshuva left to be done. Al-Kain, therefore, tshuva hi bechinat ehyeh. That's why tshuva 
is connected with the aspect of God, Bechinah here is aspect of God, of Eheyeh, Eheyeh, Asher Eheyeh, I will be that I will be the God who reveals God's self at the, the uh, burning bush. Hainu Ana Zamin Lemehve Kanal, which is associated with the phrase of I will be. To take esoterica and to make it real, when you stand before God, whatever way you understand that, and you're entreating or you're revealing yourself to what God, the God of Ehyeh, the God of being, and you do tshuva, that is your portal into being yourself, and without it, you do not exist, or you don't deserve to exist, or the world would have been better had you not existed, or your impact on the world is as if you didn't exist. Rav Cook says something similar as well. And it's very harsh, and it's very wonderful, because it raises the stakes of this holiday. It has moved us from being an ancient people who declare God's presence by sounding the shofar to a modern people who declare our presence in this world as being worthy and significant because of the work that we're doing on a holiday that our ancestors probably never envisioned but now becomes one of the most significant ways we can orient our reality, orient our years, and maybe earn the next year of our life. Or, I'll say it a little bit differently, if we indeed have earned the next year of our life, or we're going to get it, we'll now be more able to fill it with the type of being that the world deserves uh, and that is worthy of our name. So, Thank you for journeying with me through biblical, rabbinic, medieval, Hasidic sources so that you have some understanding of the holiday that we are um, about to observe um, and that you might hear the shofar blast a little bit differently this year. You might have a different image of, of kingship when you hear the, come across those phrases. And you might think about what you have to do between now and a week from tonight that will put you in a place finally to actually be the way God is described as being. Other other than the fact that um, you want to get in so many blasts of the the shofar, why is it said in um, all three parts of the services and not just in the Malkiot? How did it come to be that um, we blast, we we read the shofar, we blow the shofar in different sections of Musaf? Zifferot, the, yeah. not, I mean, so that could have been a different class, right? So, we, so to trace the halachic material, the liturgic material for how the machsor came to being, which is a great thing to study, would would be its own, you know, ninety minute class, and that wouldn't be sufficient as well. Um, you know, if we go back, you can go back to the cedarim that we have extant from the Gaonic age, from when uh, Amram Gaon wrote wrote prayer books in the eighth and ninth century, and and you see the natural development. And there's not one not one answer, but at some point, the uh, Musa for Rosh Hashanah got extended from the normal seven blessings of Yontif Amidah to nine blessings, and the, each, they had these different sections where we brought in verses from of kingship, remembrance, and shofar. And at some point, I know this is just answering the question by rephrasing the question. It, it was determined that since we had to get to a certain number of blasts, we should spread them out in these different sections. And of course, even to this day, in some synagogues, they do sections of those blasts during the silent Amidah. 
right? So if you're doing the silent time that Musaf, you get to a certain place and you pause and you wait till the show for a blast and you continue. In our community, for the most part, I don't know actually how they do the library in Do they do, do they do it during the during the silent? Interesting. So in this, in the clergy-led service, we do no shofar blasts in the silent amidah, but we do them, uh, you know, 30, uh, 10 blasts each in the, each of the sections. These are different minhagim, uh, that have d- developed over centuries. Um, but all going, I mean, those are minhagim that all stem from that source that we read in Rosh Hashanah that says, what does the word shu'ah mean? If we translate into Aramaic, it's yivava, what does that mean? Three, three long, three short, da 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 We fulfill, we try to fulfill all of the doubts by doing different types of them, and then it turned into a hundred. And numbers in Judaism are iconic, right? So a hundred, let's say a hundred blessings a day, so a hundred blasts on, on, on the shofar. The, there was already a decimal system in place, and so there was something round about a hundred, uh, in the same way that it's round now. Um, thanks for studying with me, and uh, I hope to see you all soon, and Shana Tova. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.